will open your Bibles to the book of Daniel. Daniel's about two-thirds of the way into your Bible. You should be starting to get a little crease there or a little bit of finger marking going there. And Daniel, my page is 737. I don't know what yours is, but if you don't have a Bible with you, we've got some people coming around. We want for you to have a Bible in your lap to be looking at as we dig into it. And as you're turning there, the last three Sundays, we spent the first Sunday taking a look at the first couple verses of Daniel chapter 1 and being able to see the reality that God brought his judgment upon Israel. The northern kingdom, Israel, had been exiled and the southern kingdom, Judah, had been exiled. We've gone through that whole history. If you were here at that time and, and God had warned them and yet God's serious about following him. And he had been as long suffering, had been patient with the people of Israel. And yet it came to a point where he said, enough's enough. And it's time to lovingly bring judgment upon you, frankly, so that you end up getting it again. And so God exiles them out and Judah is exiled out. Nebuchadnezzar comes in and, and takes them over. And then we saw four kidnapped teens uh, God-fearing teens, Yahweh-fearing teens, teens, then minister to the Lord, if you will, by standing upon the convictions upon which they have and seeing God bless them in that. And then last Sunday, we saw God minister his favor, equipping goodness. God gives. God gives, we talked about last week, and bless them with it. And today we're taking a look in Daniel chapter 2, beginning of a very famous story that most people have heard about, whether they are uh, Christ followers or not. We're going to kind of cover the, the first portion of this and the, the tension of it all. And let's pick up in verse 1, Daniel chapter 2. You there? All right, let's go. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, hold there. In the second year, now wait a second, because back earlier in chapter one, it talked about how Nebuchadnezzar came in and the guys had went to the king's academy, if you will, uh, the kidnapped guys for how many years? Three years. So if this is the second year of King Nebuchadnezzar, what's with that? Are we not, uh, now, is this not chronological? I'll say this. That's a good question to ask because sometimes in Daniel, it's not necessarily chronological. So here, though, we ask the question, what's going on? Well, here's the answer to that, and I'll say this. Yes, it is chronological, and here's why. A king's first year back in that day, or first portion of the year, was not their first year. Nebuchadnezzar came to the throne September 7th, 605 B.C., okay? So in September 7th, 605 B.C., their calendar year actually went more from April to March, so his, and the reason he came to, to the kingship was because his father, uh, it's something like Nabopolozar, I mean, poor guy, uh, name with that, but he died. And so Nebuchadnezzar, even after conquering Judah, because he was the general of the army, now becomes king. He's not officially in that day. The first year of his reign as king would not be starting September 7th. It wouldn't be starting until April of 604 BC. That's just the way they did it. And they did it for the reason of kind of giving gratitude or giving admiration or, or, or respect to the prior king. So in this, when it says the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, this is technically at least the third year of their schooling. This could, event could be taking place anywhere from, I'm just going to say, a month to months after what we studied last week at the end of Daniel chapter 1, okay? 
So that's where a little bit of funkiness comes in there. Don't want it for you to get confused. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had what? Dreams. Now, something I want to point out about that is it's plural. That means that he didn't just have a dream. He had dreams in it. I mean, multiple dreams. How many? I don't know. Was it two? Was it five? Was it 20? I don't know. How long had he been having these dreams? I don't know. Was it for a week? Was it the last couple days? Was it for months? Was it for actually potentially a year or more? We don't know in the text, but we do know this. He had multiple dreams. I wonder what kind of dreams they were. Well, let's keep reading. Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. So these kinds of dreams that he's having are mind-disturbing dreams. These are sleep-deprivating dreams that he's having. In other words, these aren't ordinary or even kind of weird dreams. By the way, I don't very often remember my dreams, but it's so interesting. Here we are talking about this today. And last night, I had a dream that we were in some like house, just small house with Ruth Graham, Billy Graham's wife. And we were at washing the dishes. She was washing the dishes and we're just sitting in the kitchen talking. And then we were out driving in the car and I began to, we were talking. I said, oh, Colorado Springs. Yeah, I remember I used to come out here all the time as a boy to camp to Eagle Lake up in the mountains when I was a little kid. She was like, really? I know Eagle Lake. I'll just say this. It wasn't one of those kind of dreams where you just go, what? <laughs> that is bizarre. Uh, it wasn't one of those kinds. It's where I was saying, I'm going to sleep okay tonight, even though I had that dream. For Nebuchadnezzar, he wasn't. This was something just setting him, bothering him all the way. It's literally, it's a soul troubling. The word that's used here in the Hebrew is talking about this soul troubling, haunting dream that he's having here. What thoughts would haunt a dictator king? Let's keep on going. Verse 2. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans, uh, we talked about these last week, I won't take the time today, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. I think it makes sense. He calls in his advisors. And if you have a dream... It's also one of those things that it's kind of like outside of the, the normal, like my dream last night, like, what? And yet he calls in his advisors. advisors. This was a, a normal thing that he would do, as we talked last week. These would be people on call. Now, understand, these were not necessarily people like down the hall in offices at the White House. To bring them here for this, it could have taken a day. It could have taken a couple days, especially because the Chaldeans were leaders who, from the southern part of the region of Babylon, the Babylon Empire, that in the prior uh, had taken over the northern part of Israel. And so in this, the, these were people that likely could have taken a couple days. But here Nebuchadnezzar is hoping through their combined contribution that all of them, that they're going to help him understand this soul-troubling dream that he had. Now, can you imagine being one of the advisors? Well, I can't, but let's just pretend that we were. You get the memo, you get the, the email on horseback or whatever, and, and you get, hey, come to the king, we're bringing everybody together. It's like, oh, cool. All of us are coming together? I don't know if that happened all the time, but from reading some history, I don't think that happened all the time where they were come together. It's probably a big meeting. And you're thinking, man, I get to go to the White House. 
I mean, I get to go to the king, and, 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 and I get the input on this. He needs my help. Uh, wow. I'm something. Can't you just kind of see that? I mean, even if you are humble, that's still, let's be frank about it. It still runs through your head. So here they are coming to the king. They're gathering us all together. We got a big cheese meeting here going on. And then he changes the attitude here real quick. This is almost hilarious. Look at this. So they came in and they stood before the king, verse 3. And the king said to him, said to them, look at this. I had a dream. Wait, what do you notice about that? It's singular. That's interesting. Was the dreams that he was having the same dream again and again and again and again? Or was he referring to the last dream he had that was the most troubling? Or were these, the text doesn't tell us, but it is just interesting how this flows I had a dream. I do think it's a single one over again. I'm just, that's just Doug. I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Now this word for know in the Hebrew, you and I first read this and we go, as I've always thought, he just wants to understand the interpretation. I just want to put out there, because if you do some reading on it, you can find some people who say, no, this isn't just referring to he wanted to understand the interpretation of the dream. This is also referring to, my soul is troubled. I don't remember the dream. In other words, the word is used in areas to where it's referring to having forgotten something, but you know that something happened. His soul, have you ever had that? You wake up in the morning and from a dream and you're just like sweating and all bothered. And it's like, I, I don't remember what I dreamed, but I know it was bothersome. Well, I don't think that's the case. I just want for you to know here that in this, it has the potential to mean as you read through here until a couple points, I think he's actually getting to where he knows what he dreamed, but he's wanting to understand what he dreamed. And my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Verse 4, then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic. Huh, I'm going to pause here for a moment because of this. It may not mean much to you, but once at this point, Daniel shifts from having written in Hebrew. We talked about this in our introductory Sunday on this first Sunday, three weeks, Sundays ago, that he, the first part up to here was written in Hebrew. Hebrew was his native language. He learned as a boy, learned as a teen. And most of what he's writing for in Hebrew is really directed for his, his Hebrew brothers, his Israelite brothers and sisters to really grasp what's going on. And at the end of Daniel chapter 7, chapter 8 and on, he, he brings back Hebrew, but right here, the original writing is actually shifts into Aramaic. Aramaic was the language that he was speaking in the day in Babylon. So it's this way. The first portion of Daniel is really intense for if you're a Jew, if you're an Israelite. It really has deep meaning for you in understanding what's going on. Then he shifts over here into Aramaic. Now he's speaking about world things. It's kind of like English today. You know, you go to Korea or you go to places, you go to, to Russia in meetings, and they actually have meetings in English. It's the world language. Aramaic was the world language of the day. Now he's in essence speaking so that everybody would not only understand, but everybody would relate and it's focused to them. And then he comes back really to the Jews. But here we pick up, then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. <laughs> what a bunch of schmoozers, huh? 
When the Chaldeans are speaking here, kind of for the four groups total, but they're the ones main speaking. Oh, king, live forever. Tell your servants the dreams and we will show you the interpretation. I just, I'm kind of reading with an inflection to emphasize that, you know, there could be some real arrogance in their statements here. I mean, here they're coming before the king. Oh, king, we're here. Uh, I know you're troubled. We're going to help you, bud. I mean, we're your men. Oh, king, live forever. Tell your servants to the dream. Uh, here we go, verse 5. And the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, look at this, this is funny. The word from me is firm. In other words, listen, he knows he's about to say something heavy duty, and he's starting out by saying, perk your ears, because what I'm saying, I'm not joking. The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation... You shall be torn from limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruin. Can you just see these guys at this point? I mean, they've come in and it's like, yeah, king, we're here to help you out. And then he's like, listen, you don't tell me the dream and its interpretation, you're dead. What? This was a shocker reality. Let's keep reading. Verse six, but... Okay, but maybe there's some hopeful contrast here. Uh, But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. Now, are you getting the idea that this is talking about? He's saying whether he knew it or not. He's saying, I want for you to tell me the dream and I want for you to tell me the interpretation. Right? That's what he's wanting to know. And these guys are like, give me a reward. Listen, the reward is useless. This is impossible. It's kind of like, if you can jump from here to the moon, I'll tell you what, I'll give you everything that I have, however little, however much that is. You're like, big deal. I can't jump to the moon. And so here these guys are there and they're just, they've got to be floored by this. And I love the response. Verse seven, they answered a second time and said, um, let the king tell his servants the dream. <laughs> I think this is kind of a wise response, frankly. It's like, let, let, let's like reverse. I'll tell you what, you tell us the dream again. In case you didn't quite understand what you were saying. Uh, uh, let, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show its interpretation. Uh, these guys are struggling. Why would Nebuchadnezzar do this? I think potentially for a few reasons. Uh, Number one, Nebuchadnezzar at this time is about 27, 28 years old. He was born in 630 BC. That means right at this time, 27, 28. Uh, These wise men, the Chaldeans, the enchanters, the magicians, the sorcerers, were likely the same ones that were part of the advisors for his father before. Likely, odds are, that most of these men are older than he is. Now, I was, used to be involved with business and family company, and uh, my father had helped myself and my brothers get it started, and um, I had some really irritating meetings at some times. I remember the one, and I'm just going to tell you the reality. I would wear glasses to meetings because they helped me look older. 
And the reason was because we would meet with our distributors. I remember the particular one. It was meeting from a distributor from Holland, and he was coming. He was talking to us. And you could just see the whole tone of the whole thing was, this is so cute. <laughs> this is so cute. Daddy's youngest boy is being a part of this. And this guy was like 50, in his 50s at the time. And it was so irritating, insulting, because like you don't understand. Now, I understand why you're thinking that way, but you don't understand the whole story. But listen, Nebuchadnezzar, at this time, he was general of the army. Yeah, sure, he had some advantages from his father, just like I did. Absolutely no question about that. But yet Nebuchadnezzar was general of the army, had been, no, you read in history about him, and his capabilities were astounding as a young man in his 20s. Astounding. He comes in as king, and then he has these advisors. And I wonder if part of the reason for this is just like, listen, I'm telling you, I'm drawing the line here. I'm the king. It could be that as a young man, he saw these guys working his dad. Or he just saw from afar or from next to the side in the shadow, if you will, that these guys were using and abusing his dad. I I don't know, but it could be a possibility in it. I got to tell you, maybe it's the fact that Nebuchadnezzar is just a real thinker and he really actually wants to know if these guys are really real from the gods, polytheistic worldview. I don't quite know what's going on here. It could be a combination of these. Uh, But here's the deal. He's laying it on the line and they're freaking out. Uh, Verse 8. The king answered to their, hey, why don't you just tell us the dream suggestion again? And he said, "Uh, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Uh, This is where I think there's this idea that uh, there is more than, uh, there's been some history of concern about these guys. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. I love this guy. You know what? It's kind of like on TV. Why have an amphitheater healing meeting? Why not, like, go to the hospital? Okay, we'll stay off of that one. And I think Nebuchadnezzar has a little bit of that. Okay, he's just drawn the line. Verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth, king, who can meet your demands. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. This is, this is out of our pay grade. This isn't in our contract. Verse 11, the thing that the king asks is difficult. <laughs> it's, it's difficult, king. Really? <laughs> it's difficult. And no one can show it to the king except the gods. Oh, by the way, whose dwelling place is not with flesh. Now, I'm going to call this the incredible tee the situation up for God moment right here. Let's break a couple of these or point out a couple of these notations here. No man on earth could do this. I agree with that. No man on earth could do this. 
No greater powerful king has requested for. I'm totally with you on that. No one can do this except the gods. I agree with them on that. They are spot on. And then the last statement, verse 11, the gods whose dwelling place is not with flesh. One word, Jesus. Isn't that cool? You see, in their polytheistic worldview of life, the gods are out there doing their parcheesy, whatever they do thing, on, on the clouds floating around from a distance. They don't dwell with us dirtbags. No. The God of the universe has dwelt with us. Oh, uh, John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1, verse 14, and the Word, referring to Jesus Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us. Thank you. Not only that, but Revelation chapter 21, verse 3, in the eternal state, when all is taken care of, all is done, Revelation 21, 3 says, and the dwelling place of God is with man. Listen, this is so teed up for God just to drive this on because no man can do this. Only the gods, proper theology, only God is able to do this. Uh, friends, let, let's remember that the Israelites have been dispersed in judgment, dispersed in punishment, if you will. They've been dispersed out. God is, uh, the temple is gone where is God to work from? The Gentiles. Listen, God is not dependent upon any human. Sing a song about that, Lord. And here God is showing himself through the Gentiles. Listen, God is going to the polytheists to show himself big. Oh, this is so teed up perfectly for God to show himself. Verse 12. Because of this, the king was angry, <laughs> very furious, and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. Wow. Verse 13. Or I'll just say this. When the king ain't happy, no one's happy. <laughs> Verse 13. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed. By the way, where's Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah in all of this? Oh, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. They sought them out. Hmm. So they weren't there at the meeting. Now, I want to pause here for a little bit. What would you be thinking if all of a sudden you got the message that because you're classified in one of the categories of the wise men category, you weren't even there, you couldn't even speak, you didn't have anything to say, and you're told basically, come, 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 come along, and we're going to kill you. What would you be thinking? What would you do? I'd suggest generally there's two things we do. One is we would attack. We would attack, we would attack you know, in our thinking, uh, who is he? Who is this king? He has no right. This is unfair. He is evil. Why me? I wasn't even given a chance to try and like throw my two cents in this deal. And by the way, that thinking mentally can go into the whole aspect of, God, what's your problem? 
Where are you? Who are you? Oh, here's another one. A bad situation is happening before me. Satan's behind this. Really? Be careful. Because very well possibly could people who are thinking that at that time, they are literally attributing the situations at hand that are at the hand by God himself as from Satan. We need to be careful. You could take that into verbal reality, not only think it, but say it, both to the king. Here's another one, attack physically. Just (laughs) charge the king and take him out. What do you got to lose? Your life? I mean, you're already going to be killed, so just go at him, attack him physically. So attack, or another one is retreat, go into hiding, go to Canada, Uh, just give up, fall apart in panic, freak out, go to isolation, go into depression. I wonder how they're going to respond. Verse 14, Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch. Arioch is like the chief of, in fact, it says there, the captain of the king's guard. He's like the, the chief of the national police. He's kind of like the head of the KGB, if you want to put it that way. But Daniel replied with prudence. I love this word because the word literally means with counsel. Now, it's not referring to the fact that he replied giving counsel, but he replied as someone who has counsel within them. He just talked with someone, it's like, wow. They speak as someone who's like with counsel. I mean, they're just wise. That's Daniel. This is like a 20-year-old young man. He's replying with prudence. Not only did he reply with with counsel, but with discretion. In other words, with taste, with good sense, with discernment. He didn't go, you're a loser. How can this happen? Uh, But with discretion and with prudence. What does that look like? Verse 15, here's what responding in a situation like this looks like. Ask a question. Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. Verse 15, he declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? It's kind of like, I'm thinking in my head, like, this is maybe, could we say this is an overreaction? But yet he doesn't do it in a, a snotty way. He does it in a respectful way. Question. Why is this situation so urgent? Uh, Look what a question results in. Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. So Arioch tells Daniel the whole situation. Well, this is what happened. The king's been having these dreams. And then he brings all the wise men together in his council. They come together. He tells them, you've got to do this. And you've got to tell me the dream. And you've got to tell me the interpretation of the dream. And they're like, "Uh, can't do that. No one can do that. Only the gods could do that. Listen, folks. I'm going to make an assumption here that it's right at this moment after Daniel's asked a question, he's hearing this story and someone who views life through the lens of a sovereign God in here somewhere is all of a sudden going, could be, could be, God's doing a work here. Listen, this is about the person who's pausing and getting good theological thinking going in their head. They just ask a question. He's learning this story and he's viewing it through a lens of scripture where he's seeing life through a lens of who God is and what life is about. And it's out of this that he's beginning to get this perspective, I think, on what's taking place. Why is the decree so urgent? So he learns the story, verse 16. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time. His single question got him before the king. 
got him before the king that he might show the interpretation to the king. So he comes in before the king. There he is before the king. He's asking the king, hey, can, can, you, can, can, can I have some time? I'd like to help. I think part of this is I'm not ready to die yet. But I'm going to tell you, as we see Daniel and what's taking place here, I, I'm, I just, I'll say to the point, I'm just convinced Daniel is coming at this from a perspective of, listen, in this hard, tense trial situation at hand, God is behind this, and I want to get behind God. And he's literally trying to help the king. Listen, in other words, king, if God has been given you uh, this dream I'm about God, and I want to get in on that party, and so I want to help. Can you give me some time? I would love to try and come and be able to reveal to you what God has to say. Oh, what a cool guy. Well, let's say this, application-wise, he pauses. He pauses. Hey, friends, when, when you're in a time of trial, a time of tense, when you're at home with your spouse or with the kids or with your friends, or you're just at work and all of a sudden you feel the blood pressure, time to pause. Time to pause and do two things. Put on right theology. Put on right theology. Put on right thinking. I remind myself of who God is. Listen, God is sovereign. God is in control. God loves me. God knows exactly what's taking place in this. Do you realize that God is behind this? 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No trial is overtaking you that is not common to man. And God is faithful. And he will not let me be trialed, be tempted beyond what I can bear. God has not allowed anything ever to come into your and my life that is too much for you and I. Or anything to come into your and my life that he does not already know about. Man, that's starting to get some right thinking. He sees it all. He's in it all. He's loving. He's powerful. He's sovereign. He's intimate. He's personal. He's the creator. Oh, yeah, he's here. Not only remind myself of who God is, but remind myself of what God is up to. Maybe God is using this situation to grow me in him. Maybe God is using this situation for me to be able to do ministry for him. Maybe God is working all things to his plans. Maybe I have no idea what this is all about, but I do know this. God wants me to respond in a way that brings him glory. And you know what? Later on, he'll take care of the working it all out. Can you imagine if you and I in our house, at work, wherever is taking place, if when things come up, when trials, temptations, tense moments come up, if just even, friends, for 10 seconds, we just stop and pause and get right theology in our head. Sovereign, holy, loving, righteous, working God is in everything, and that means here right now. Man, would that change how I respond after that, or at least sure help. Put on right thinking, right theology, and also I'll just say gather information. You just ask a question. You know, you hear something, it's like, oh, I can't believe she would. He would. Wow. Maybe you need to like gather information. Proverbs say, says what sounds right from one person is may not be the case until you talk to the other. So don't rush to a response, but pause. But here's the thing. Pause to pursue. Pause to pursue. 
of verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house, made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah and his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. I think Daniel not not only did not want to die, but Daniel wanted to find out what God was up to. I'll put it this way. So pause to pursue God. Uh, Pursue God in prayer. God, you say come to you for wisdom. I'm coming. God, what are you up to? God, help me in this. And we talked about prayer at the end of last year. Just come to the table. I'm coming to the table with the Father, with the Son, with the Spirit, and the Word of God. I'm coming to the table, God. Uh, pursue God in prayer. Pursue God in his word. Pursue his revelation. Here he's talking, I want to know his mysteries. Oh, by the way, friends, let's not forget this. Back in that day, the permanent indwelling of the spirit was not the case. Oh, today it is. If you know Jesus Christ as your savior, if you've received Jesus Christ as your savior, get this. You've got one up on Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And that's this. You have the permanent indwelling of the spirit of God. And we're kind of like, yeah, okay. I have no idea what that even means. Oh, I'm telling you, it's way better than what he had. Not only that, not only do we have the permanent dwelling of the Spirit of God, but we have the Word of God. Daniel didn't have all this. This isn't an introduction manual to God. This is the instruction manual about God and all of life. Uh, In 2 Peter, it says, he has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Do you realize that the Bible says that everything you need for living life and for living life to please God, where is it at? Everybody point, where is it at? Right here. And yet I have to say, do I think about it that way and treat it that way? Am I like gobbling it up in the kind of way where it's it's God's words? It's God's instructions. And therefore, I pursue it. Not only do I pursue God in prayer and pursue God in the word, but I'm going to put this down. I note it down. Pursue God with others. Dot, dot, dot. The right kind of others. Uh, The right kind of others uh, are not this. In these kind of situations, it's not unredeemed, unpraying, unword of God people. You know, but my aunt who, whatever, my friend who's not even a believer, this or that, and I'm seeking the counsel from them, I'm going to tell you, they don't have an understanding of sin, they don't have an understanding of God, they don't have an understanding of life. That's not the right kind of others. But pursue with others the kind of people that are going to bring you and me to our knees together and to the word of God. Not just talking about God, but opening the word of God. Listen, the right, and I'm not talking about professional counselors. I am, but I'm talking about any kind of counselor. Are they the kind of people to bring you to prayer and to the word of God? Man, that's a great situation that you've got at hand. Let's find out what God's word has to say about that. Is that the case? Or or am I talking with Aunt B, who who just is like, you know what? I read an Oprah the other day. And I do mean this serious. Also, I'm just going to add this I'd written down. I'm just amazed at the, oftentimes, the lack of Christ relationship 
between brothers and sisters in Christ. In other words, there's just a whole lot of relationship isolation taking place. Where did Daniel go? He, he took it to these guys. He took it to his guys. Do you take things to your small group? I need help. I'm wrestling through this. Do, do, do you call someone who the right kind of others who's going to come around you and help you and get with people? So often it's, I'm not going to let people into my life or my business or my problems or my heart. I've been burnt by people in the past. And listen, I understand. Together is hard. Together is messy. Together takes time. But guess what? God has called us to be people together. And I realize it's harder for some than for others for a variety of reasons. But I'm just going to tell you this. My personality doesn't excuse it. The fact that it's hard or it's uncomfortable for me doesn't excuse it. You may not be a people person, but God has called you to be with people. And that's a challenge. And that's not an easy thing. But that's what God has called you and I to be. So we pause. We pause to pursue and finally, we pause to pray. I'm just going to verse 19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision that night. Hey, could I have the communion servers just come on down and get ready? We're, we're going to take communion. And actually, we're going to read the end of this passage here in a little bit. Well, I think this is just a perfect time to take communion because here's what I want for us to do together. I would like for us, in essence, to pause. Just to pause together. Uh, to pause together and, and, and to, uh, here in the time of communion, just pause and, and, and get our thinking right. Listen, friends, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh, has come and dwelt among us. And did for you and I what we cannot do for ourselves in dying on the cross. You see, every one of us has a sin problem. We're separated from God because of sin. But the Bible says God saw that problem and he loves us so much out of his grace for us, not because we're so magnificent, but because of God's grace. And he came and he died on the cross paying our price for our sin. And if you've received that gift that he makes available, you've been redeemed. And communion is a time to remember the broken body and the shed blood of our Savior for paying that price for you and I. And this is a time of pausing to pursue and remember and also to praise. So here's what I want to do. We're going to have a song playing here. I would encourage you just on your own, read verses 20 to 23. And just whenever you're ready, if you know Christ is your Savior, just go ahead and get on up and go grab a cup and grab grab the bread and bring it back to your chair and then we're going to partake together. Let's pause and pursue and praise the Lord.